Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. Your in-depth analysis and discussion of current events in the Western Balkans. Welcome to Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. This is our last issue for this year, 2023, and my name is Florian Bieber. And my name is Damir Kapicic. In this issue, we are first going to look at the election results in Serbia, as well as the allegations for voter fraud in the parliamentary elections, as well as in the local elections in Belgrade. And in the second part, we're going to take a deep dive into the latest BIEPAG policy brief that looks at authoritarianism in the Western Balkans. So let's dig right into it. Seriously Balkans, the BIEPAG talks. Welcome to our segment on the Serbian election results uh, in parliamentary and local elections. And I'm very glad to talk to Tara Tepavac, who is a researcher at the Institute for Philosophy and Social Theory in Belgrade. She's been observing the work of the Serbian parliament for many years. And we have Nikola Borada, who is the program director at the Center for Contemporary Politics and the executive editor of European Western Balkans, who's been also following Serbian politics and also worked on the uh, documentary Time of Autocracy. Seriously, Balkans, the BIPAC talks. Let's get started. There were massive protests this year in Serbia, protests against violence. The opposition called itself after those protests. And there was an expectation also in the polls that the opposition would do dramatically better, or rather that the ruling party, SNS, would do considerably worse than it did last year. At the end of the day, the opposition gained just above 23% of the vote, but the ruling SNS did even stronger than last year and gained an absolute majority. How do we explain that, Nicola? Well, if we're talking about the ruling party, the Serbian Progressive Party, its good result is uh, pretty surprising, having in mind most pre-election polls. But if you look at a uh, very bad result of their coalition partner, the Socialist Party of Serbia, it's uh, probable that these votes were actually taken from uh, the SPS by the SNS, meaning that uh, the votes went from one party in the ruling coalition to the other, and that altogether uh, these two parties do not have more votes than they had last year. So uh, despite this very strong result of the SNS, you can see that overall the popularity of the government is decreasing as some uh, surveys have indicated before the elections. When it comes to the pro-EU opposition, uh, which was uh, united in the Serbia Against Violence Coalition, their result was around 5% better than last year's results of the parties who were comprising uh, this coalition. So basically, the result itself is not bad. It is not worse or significantly worse from some of the more optimistic pre-election polls. So that shouldn't be seen as a huge disappointment. But of course, there was this uh, hope uh, that uh, there will be this X factor of the protest last year to, you know, to drive support for this list uh, in the elections uh, on a much higher level. But this hasn't uh, been the case, probably because of other topics, basically taking center stage in the meantime and uh, the protest simply blowing over. Thanks, Nicola. The other maybe surprising uh, result of the election is the decline of the far right and the kind of uh, Eurosceptic parties. We only have one of the older established parties, the Coalition Nada, which includes the Democratic Party of Serbia, now called the New Democratic Party of Serbian Parliament. The two most prominent far right movements, Zavetnici and Tveri, did not make it into parliament despite forming a pre-election coalition. So 
is the decline of the far right indicative of a change in popular public opinion? Or how do we explain this decline in terms of votes, not just in terms of percentages, but also in absolute numbers, the vote for the far right dropped by nearly 100,000? I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, right-wing opposition parties have become weaker in Serbia. I would say that they primarily paid the price for disunity. So where the pro-Western, pro-European political parties finally managed to form one wider coalition and achieve significantly better results than last year, the right-wing opposition did not form one electoral lists. They went in four separate lists, and therefore the result was that only one of them actually managed to pet the threshold, while others uh, remained uh, uh, below. Of course, there was this X factor of uh, Vladimir Nestorovich and his... Uh, uh, we uh, movement, which uh, came as a total surprise without any kind of infrastructure, a movement which was only announced around 50 days ago, which won around 5% of the vote, which is a, really a huge number of votes for a completely new political movement. So we can assume that uh, it was the rise of this movement and uh, you know the division of votes among all these parties, which eventually led to only one of these mainstream uh, right-wing parties entering the parliament, that being the, uh, the NADA coalition uh, led by the new Democratic Party of Serbia. But also important is uh, if we try to analyze why did this one list manage to get a good result, even better than uh, what the pre-election polls have signaled, and while these others uh, stayed below the threshold, one part of the explanation might be that the NADA coalition was out of all of these coalitions actually uh, most strongly anti-government. So they did not put some of these national questions such as Kosovo or Russia, you know, uh, as the main message of the campaign, but they focused on opposition to the government. In that sense, they, let's say, created the impression that they are a mainstream right-wing opposition to the authoritarian regime, and then everything else is second, while others, I think, tried more, you know, to use uh, uh, Kosovo issue being so present uh, this year to get some votes, like on this topic itself, which was obviously a failure. Yes, thanks, Nicola. Yeah, let's turn to the other big development uh, of the elections, which is the irregularities. So this is something which I would like to hear your thoughts on, Tara. And I'm just quoting from the report, the preliminary report of Odier, which in very strong language talks about the ruling party's systematic advantage creates unjust conditions, talks about bias in the media, pressure on public sector employees and the misuse of public resources, serious irregularities, including vote buying and ballot box stuffing. So this is quite strong language for the Odier election observation mission, which uh, we're not really used to. What can you tell us about these irregularities and, and what do they tell us about the kind of viability of the elections? Yes, thank you. It's actually, it's good to hear finally some strong words <laughs> from the international observation missions. And they're definitely in line with what the uh, local uh, domestic observation missions have been seeing and reporting on. So when we talk about the quality of the whole electoral process in Serbia, I guess we, we can talk about two most important aspects. One is the overall uh, time before the election day. So the electoral campaign, which uh, uh, comes before of the very day when the ballots are casted. And uh, we are seeing 
years on uh, a trend of big, uh, very drastic irregularities in the favor of the ruling coalition uh, in uh, several different ways in which uh, the electoral process is being uh, compromised in the way of abuses of uh, state institutions by the ruling majority or by the ruling coalition, uh, mostly the biggest um, party which is on power, the, the SNS. We're also seeing a lot of reports and indications on the functional campaigns which are being led in the media. We have a completely uneven playing field, actually, between the ruling coalition on the one hand and the opposition on the other. In Also very uh, significantly when we talk about the media reporting, we have a strong domination in the medias, particularly in the media with national frequencies, which is almost completely dominated uh, by the representatives, by the campaigns of the uh, ruling party and uh, actually the leaders of the ruling party um, in the media. All of these reports that we are seeing months on are just showing to which extent the playing field in which the opposition is running uh, the electoral com- campaign is uneven. Of course, this is not something that we have been seeing only this year, but it has definitely escalated in comparison to the last years. And the biggest escalation that we have seen is on the second aspect of the electoral process, and that's the very election day. And we have seen that this kind of uh, irregularities that have been uh, reported on uh, weeks on uh, have been definitely escalated to the point that we have seen significant uh, indications on electoral engineering, particularly when we talk about the uh, local elections in Belgrade. We have seen cases uh, about mass abuses of electoral right, uh, bribing voters, pressures on voters, particularly pressures on the people who are coming from administration, state administrative institutions. We have also seen migration of voters, and this was one of the things that uh, has raised a lot of attention and worries in the public. We have seen cases of uh, mass migration of voters which do not have a residence in Belgrade coming from other countries and even under other parts of uh, Serbian state to vote on uh, the local elections in Belgrade. All of this has uh, put a big question mark on the legitimacy of the results uh, which came after the election day particularly in the case of the Belgrade uh, elections. And this is definitely uh, very worrying in the sense that uh, it sheds a big questions on the legitimacy of every upcoming local elections in future. Why? Because uh, the third aspect, which is very worrying in this case, is that uh, although we are having an increase in the number of cases about uh, potential irregularities of electoral process, we did not see an efficient uh, reaction of the state institutions, which should be reacting, starting uh, to investigate these uh, alleged cases from starting from voters buying to migration of voters, parallel vo- voters released, etc. We didn't see any efficient reaction uh, which should help the citizens to put back their, uh, uh, to, to start believing again uh, that the, their electoral right is being uh, protected in the way that it should be. Thanks, Tata. Um, I mean, you've been, as I mentioned in the introduction, monitoring the work of the Serbian parliament for many years and also seeing how um, there's space for a uh, constructive opposition in the parliament. Um, and you, I think your conclusions have been rather bleak. Now, the opposition is much stronger than it has been uh, ever since President Vucic and his uh, party came to power in 2012 for the first time. Do you see space for the opposition in parliament or elsewhere? to gain a more prominent profile and to pursue kind of a strong presence in the institutions. 
Well, although we are not, uh, although the opposition is not really satisfied with the results uh, of the elections, we have to say that they did make a significant progress in comparison to all of the previous years. These are the best results that they have gained on the parliamentary level since 2012, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So in that sense, uh, we can expect that the opposition is having a much stronger uh, position in the parliament uh, that should be um, in the new convocation uh, of the parliament. Uh, uh, this is definitely something which is putting a bit of hope uh, and optimism uh, for a more solidified role of the opposition, because we have seen and witnessed in the last past uh, couple of years that uh, the uh, return of the opposition in the parliament after the boycott, which uh, uh, was happening before 2020, uh, did make uh, a change. So the uh, way that the opposition managed to fight for space within the parliament and to try to reach a part of the Serbian population through their speeches in the parliament and engagement through the parliament did make, I would say, did make a mark and did help them to solidify their position and to spread their message uh, wider to the Serbian population, particularly having in mind that the, the space for opposition to send their messages and to reach the voters is very, very limited in Serbia, particularly in the media. So the, um, uh, the parliament is one of the few places in which they are trying to uh, use their role to spread their messages, uh, although they are facing a lot of uh, misuses, abuses um, within the parliament, uh, which are narrowing this space uh, as well in the biggest, most important representative institutions in Serbia. On the other hand, I think that uh, we can expect, again, the continuation of the trend of misuse of parliamentary mechanisms and procedures. We have seen that already uh, in the last year, the uh, the convocation of the parliament, um, which now ended with these elections, was marked with uh, a significant level of misuse and abuse of parliamentary procedure by the ruling uh, party, uh, which was intended to, on the one hand, slander the political opponents and opposition to spread this kind of narratives of them as traitors, etc., negative campaign uh, rent uh, against them, uh, definitely focusing much more on this kind of uh, disputes with political opponents rather than on really discussing the um, laws that are in the parliament and really dwelling on to the work of the MPs as they should be. And on the other hand, we have also seen the attempt to uh, put a stop on some of the parliamentary mechanism that should be used for parliamentary oversight. And I'll just give you one example. This is the case, for instance, of the inquiry committee that the opposition initiated in order to try to uh, investigate a bit more what happened after the big tragedies that we had in spring in Serbia. There was a mass shooting in one of the elementary schools and a day after a mass shooting in one of the villages, which raised significant fear and dissatisfaction of the citizens um, who were wondering why the institutions were not doing their job. The opposition MPs actually initiated an inquiry committee, which was then abroad actually ceased, ended by the uh, president of the National Assembly without any legitimate explanation. So we can actually expect that these kind of initiatives coming from the MPs will be coming, uh, will be faced with the struggle uh, coming from the ruling majority. Uh, but uh, the only way that they can actually reach the, um, uh, their voters and the only way they can actually start to bring back the uh, trust in the parliament is to continue uh, pushing to initiate parliamentary mechanisms and procedures on the one hand and also to call for civil society and the citizens to support them in demanding from the parliament and from other uh, state institutions to actually do their job. 
Nikolai, how do you see the chances of the opposition um, remaining uh, unified and an important player in, in politics in the coming years, um, considering it's such a heterogeneous coalition? Well, in Serbia, there is uh, always a question of how long the parties can stay united in, in coalitions because of the tendencies for coalitions to break up and for the parties themselves to disintegrate into smaller parties. So one should always be skeptical about uh, how long a coalition might uh, actually stay together. But um, I honestly believe that this time there have been exception because we could clearly see that uh, the pro-EU opposition was rewarded basically on the elections because of uniting in one coalition. So winning not only the sum of total votes of these parties in previous elections, but also winning votes on top of that and in representing in the eyes of many citizens a quite clear alternative to the ruling parties. Uh, this hasn't been the case, for example, with the right-wing parties, which is why you know they uh, have uh, achieved uh, such uh, bad results. So this time around, I expect Serbia Against Violence to uh, stay together. Perhaps all of these parties will stay in this coalition. Maybe there will be some changes, some inclusions or exclusions, but I do expect uh, the coalition to stay more or less uh, coherent and to continue the struggle, you know, and prepare for future elections. This would be, I would say, an important step forward for political pluralism in Serbia, because previously, if you looked at the composition of the parliament or if you look at the election results, you would see the SNS being uh, having around 50 percent of the vote or even more than that and uh, even more uh, seats in the parliament. And then the others would be literally 10 times weaker than the SNS. Now there is a list which is uh, only half as strong as the SNS, but still we are seeing, uh, uh, let's say, a lot less fragmented picture if you look at uh, the results. So this will have, I expect, uh, even a psychological effect on the voters. And I can only hope that the opposition leaders uh, understand this and that they do not allow some kind of small ideological or personal differences to jeopardize this and for them to go back to where they started, which is uh, there being uh, numerous uh, weak uh, political parties which uh, change coalitions in every elections, and then the voters have a hard time identifying with either the parties or the coalitions, and that really does have a, a long-term impact on opposition chances. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Tara. As you could hear, um, while the elections might have at first glance yielded some of the results we're used to in Serbian elections over the last decade, there are some crucial changes, uh, some crucial moments which suggest that um, there are some challenges to the competitive authoritarian system afoot, and we'll have to wait for the upcoming elections and also the result of investigating the irregularities to see uh, the impact. Seriously, Balkans. The Beapod Talks. Hello, um, Damir here. And now we're moving on to the second segment where we will talk about the most recent BIEPAC policy brief called Beyond Stabilitocracy, unveiling the rise of autocracy in the Western Balkans. The brief basically summarizes what has been happening in politics in the past years and points to a disturbing trend, which we'll talk about a bit more. With us are the authors, Maria Jolai, Marko Kmezic and myself. And the brief is available on the BIEPAG website, www.biepag.eu. Seriously, Balkans, the BIEPAG talks. So first, Marika, 
There are a lot of headline-grabbing events happening in the world right now, and this has been the case for a while. Why does this brief come at this particular moment? Well, Damire, unfortunately, we have been witnessing several waves of bad things happening globally. Most recently, obviously, it is war in Ukraine, which affected Europe in terms of security, in terms of stability, but uh, global uh, economic fluctuations as well. We also have conflict between Israel and Palestine, most recent from October this year. Before that, the world was affected by global pandemic, which strengthened autocratic leaders and limited freedoms of the citizens. And certainly we have seen or we have been seeing a decline of democracy globally across many countries, which means that the situation is changing for the worse. And that's why we thought. So, Marco, you were one of the authors of the first brief on autocratization that introduced the term stabilitocracy. How has stabilitocracy evolved in these years between the two briefs? Stabilitocracy is alive and kicking. It is as well as ever. And um, as defined, it is a step back from the earlier vision of integration, which would be based on equality and eventual convergence. It rather emphasizes geopolitical considerations over liberal democracy. And this trend uh, we still still continue, we see still continuing in the Western Balkans, whereby semi-authoritarian stabilitocracies uh, across the region are both willing to cause and manage instability with their respective neighbors or towards an internal other, be it opposition or minorities, uh, for the sake of securing continued rule. And uh, with this uh, in mind, we observe the EU still largely prefer to keep an, an eye closed uh, to these tendencies. Now, back to you, Marika. Can you tell us if something substantial has changed in Southeast European regimes in recent years? What is the role of foreign influence in pushing for these changes? Well, we certainly can see that the regimes in Southeastern Europe have become more autocratic, they have become more controlling and destabilizing. And we have also seen a larger or a stronger involvement of foreign actors. Maybe they were there before, but certainly did not receive so much attention. But we see them in the energy sector, we see them engaging with uh, the autocrats in the region, such as Russia. China as, as the dominant two actors, but also smaller authoritarian partners like Hungary. All of this is, on the one hand, strengthening autocratic leaders, but on the other hand, is actually having hands-on approach and influence in the resource, natural resource management, in economy, in trade, and, and different, ultimately, in, in functioning of the South East European states. Maybe, Damire, since you were also one of the authors, you can tell us about indicators that measure this democratic decline that we're talking about. Yes. So in this study, we used mostly the VDEM indicators that measure the levels of democracy in these countries. And it's not just a single indicator that we looked at, the single indicator that actually puts two countries into something that are called electoral autocracies, namely Serbia and Albania. All of the others are not far behind. They're actually all in a very, very similar in-between category. But we also used indicators like the Freedom of Expression and Alternative Sources of Information Index, which 
actually visualizes this decline best that happened in the past 20 or so years, where the countries have contracted in the levels of democracy or they have remained stagnant and have not progressed at all further. Now, Marco, we have just heard about the elections in Serbia uh, in Florian's segment. How does the brief allow us to make sense of what happened during these elections? The brief actually outlines uh, main elements of state capture and de-democratization in the region and uh, potentially sheds light on ways in which uh, incumbent governments are actually uh, taking the advantage of their position in power to skew the election results and to actually maintain their position in power. So uh, what we have predicted somehow um, did actually happen. And uh, two main takeaways from the elections in Serbia is that for the first time since the change of government in 2012, we actually do see strong democratic corpus, uh, relatively strong, uh, just about 20% of uh, votes uh, won in the uh, parliamentary elections. And secondly, it seems that for the first time, actually, the, the government, which is regime, was caught red-handed uh, in their efforts to skew the um, election results and to rig the elections. So we have heard uh, quite interesting takeaways from the report of the uh, Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, uh, OSC institution. And this was later followed in a joint statement by High Representative Josef Borrell and Commissioner for Neighborhood and Enlargement, Oliver Varheli, on parliamentary elections in Serbia. So the thing uh, that remains to be seen and to keep an eye on is actually how resilient uh, civic protests and opposition demanding will be for either a recount of votes or new local elections, at least in Belgrade. David, the, the brief also mentions that stabilitocracy is inherently unstable. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, Marco. So actually looking at the Serbian elections is a good way to think about this because stabilitocracy usually goes on the premise that a leader can ensure stability in a country. But after a while, we see that the tactics that are used internally to achieve this stability actually lead towards more repression and authoritarianism. The elections in Serbia with blatant electoral manipulations are a key factor in this. So stability is no longer achievable through democratic or semi-democratic means. You really need to resort to heavy authoritarian influence, not just in the media sphere, not just in judiciary, but even through elections. So stabilitocracy in itself, it by using authoritarian tactics and authoritarian processes actually leads towards an authoritarian state in the end. This is something that we mentioned in the brief and that we've uh, tried to highlight as much as possible. So Marco, again, to back to you, we have heard a lot about the politics of autocratization, but what we also tried to emphasize in the brief is this role of the citizens. Is there any role for them in countries that are moving towards autocracy? The role of the citizens, Damir, is absolutely crucial because the context in which autocracies or, or in which stabilitocracies are developing is the context of uh, derosed institutions. And in such a context where independent state institutions, regulatory bodies, and uh, the division of power in classical sense is actually 
damaged uh, than the role of, let's say, this fourth branch of power, which can be attributed to uh, media, to civic organizations and to uh, citizens is uh, becoming even more crucial because if not them, then who can be expected to keep the government in checks and balances and to actually ask questions with regard to these uh, the democratization processes? Ideally, of course, and this we have learned uh, from the case of uh, North Macedonia, ideally this uh, bottom-up pressure by civil society, by citizens, should be coupled and should be matched uh, by a top-down pressure coming from the EU, which embodies this uh, institution that can pressure governments to do their job better. So only in this correlation between the two, we we might see the end of uh, stabilitocracy in the Balkans. Thank you, Marco. And Marika, a last question to you. Can you leave us with some conclusions and recommendations from the brief? What are its main takeaways? Well, Damir, first of all, sadly, we had to agree that the Western Balkan countries have transitioned from stabilitocracy to autocracy in the past seven years, and that most of the countries have also become less stable. There is structural violence, individual political violence, and generally the situation feels more dire. There is definitely a lack of progress on the EU accession part for all of the Western Balkan countries for different reasons. But this has created conditions, especially, for example, for North Macedonia, that pushes the countries which managed to make a positive democratic development, pushes them back towards uh, autocracy because these enabling elements of the EU accession are simply missing. Citizens, as we said, have a strong role, but they can be also misled uh, by the autocratic leaders. Unified commitment to the democratic process, to democratic institutions which struggle to evolve or to grow. And ultimately, all of this leads to the erosion of democratic processes in the Western Balkan countries. Thank you very much to both of you. And the brief can be found on the Biapag's website. Seriously Balkans, the Biapag talks. So Florian, can you give us a few key takeaways from your segment? What is it that really stuck with you? Well, one of the key points which uh, Nicola makes in our conversation is that while in the parliamentary elections, the ruling SNS has gained vote over the last elections, what we see here is that the overall sum of the ruling parties has not really shifted. In fact, together with the SPS, the socialists, on overall, uh, the number of the ruling parties has declined. The other key point is uh, explaining the downturn of the more nationalist forces. And I think the point he makes there, which is important, is that the main conservative nationalist party, which did enter parliament, did so mostly in campaigning against the government rather than on emphasizing Kosovo or the kind of classical nationalist issues and those parties who did so didn't do so well. And the key takeaway from Tara's uh, point about uh, parliament and election irregularities is that, of course, the irregularities which have been now at the center of the protest movements is just the tip of the iceberg and that there are many more irregularities uh, which are part of the electoral process which go much deeper than just the shipping in of uh, voters from other parts of Serbia and Republika Srpska to uh, Belgrade. So 
turning to you, Damir, what is your key takeaway from the kind of larger study, which of course puts in certain way the electoral con election contest in Serbia into the larger environment of competitive authoritarianism as we're experiencing it in a number of countries in the Western Balkans? Well, I guess the main thing is that despite all of the headline-grabbing news that is happening right now and in recent years, the shift towards authoritarianism is not a sudden moment. It's a gradual thing that has been coming and that is still ongoing. There are several factors to this. Most of them relate to executive overreach and lack of accountability on part of elected leaders with authoritarian traits. Now, within all of this, we can see that the support for stabilitocracy that we have seen coming from the European Union and from countries throughout the broader environment has actually led leaders in countries such as Serbia, Montenegro, Albania, Macedonia, Republika Srpska and Bosnia-Herzegovina to adopt a stance that anything goes. Their survival is paramount and they're ready to engage in authoritarian processes and tactics in order to maintain power. And this is something that we have seen this shift from stabilitocracy towards authoritarianism. It's there and it's ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, David. And of course, this puts the elections and also the irregularities in the wider context and shows us also how this is part of a broader problem, authoritarian consolidation in many ways across the Western Balkans. So I hope you enjoyed our last episode for 2023 of Seriously Balkans and tune in for further episodes in the new year. Thank you. Thank you very much and a happy new year to all, hopefully less eventful, although we're not sure about that. Indeed. Goodbye. You've been listening to Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. This podcast is produced by the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group, a joint project of the European Fund for the Balkans and the Center for Southeast European Studies of the University of Graz. Find out more about our research, analysis and advocacy at www.biapag.eu.